run that through first grade, and you are more than welcome to check your children in now. For those of you that don't utilize it, we love having children in the service, uh, love hearing our children sing to the Lord. Uh, we have bulletins that are produced for them that if you haven't grabbed it already, they are in the back. You can grab it. It's their way to help them follow along with this, the sermon this morning, and your uh, worship guide is kind of a cheat sheet, if you will, for that. Um, just over the last nine-ish weeks, we have been looking at what our confession says regarding uh, the scriptures, and this morning we are in paragraph nine uh, of chapter one of the Holy Scriptures, and paragraph nine says this thing, the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself, and therefore when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So the, the only perfect rule of interpretation as it relates to handling the Word of God is the Word of God itself. And we want to be people that are mindful of the whole counsel of God's Word when we handle it, when we read it, and when we seek to uh, apply it to our lives. And so with that said, would you t- turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark? The Gospel of Mark is where we are uh, camping out, and uh, this morning we are going to look particularly at verses 12 and 13, which uh, Mark documents in a shorthand, immediate form, as we have seen uh, already going through this book together, the temptation of Jesus Christ. And, and just uh, by way of reminder, and this is going to come out a little bit more in the message, we, uh, uh, the, uh, there is universal agreement that it is John Mark that uh, penned the gospel of Mark, that the gospel of Mark really is um, source material for both Matthew and Luke, that it was penned to Roman Christians, not to uh, Jewish uh, Christians. And it, uh, regarding uh, the person and work of Christ, emphasizing um, e- even more than anything, really, the work of Christ. It's kind of an action-focused book, and it was written between A.D. 60 to A.D. 70, around the time uh, of Nero's reign, who uh, heavily persecuted Christians. And so we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read it, and then I'll pray, and then I'm going to bring in the Gospel of Matthew to fill in a little bit more of the temptation of Christ Jesus. But we're going to look at not Matthew, but Mark's account. And so Mark penned this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, the Gospel of Mark. Immediately, the Spirit drove him, speaking of Christ, into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, knowing that your Holy Spirit is using it in our lives. And so grant us humility, grant us eyes of faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So not only do we see the temptation of Jesus Christ here in the Gospel of Matthew, but we know as well that the temptation of Christ Jesus is recorded uh, in uh, not just in Mark, but in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel as well. But, but both Matthew and Luke, they contain 
more details. And I, and I wanted to read for you just quickly Matthew's account to fill out a little bit of what we don't see in the gospel of Mark. And so uh, you can flip over if you'd like to Matthew chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have it up here on the screen. And I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. And, and just as I'm reading it, maybe try to take note of of the similarities even, but, but of course, in 11 verses, there's a lot more that is uh, detailed for us in Matthew's account. But Matthew documents the temptation of Christ this way. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not, be, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 5, then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 8, the third temptation. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So there are, there are several similarities here, and, and there are obvious um, differences here just in, because of the brevity of Mark's account. But both Matthew and Mark and Luke, if we were to look there, testify that it was the, the Spirit of God that led Christ to the wilderness. And, and the Greek in Mark is that the Spirit thrust, there's a forcefulness behind it, thrust Christ into the wilderness. And we'll, we'll revisit that in just a moment. In all three Gospels, they connect as well Christ going into the wilderness for the purpose of this great temptation, this showdown, if you will, between Christ and Satan. Okay, And, and, and Mark specifically uses Satan uh, to describe who it is that Christ is meeting. And, and it was, uh, while this is the first encounter that we have recorded, uh, Satan's uh, the encounter between Jesus and Satan, we certainly know uh, from Matthew's account that it was Satan himself that sought to uh, kill Jesus after Christ was born. Um, and we, we see that in Matthew chapter 2 in the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 2. But this is the first record of Christ's encounter with Satan. So Jesus, according to Mark, he's, he's thrust out, if you will, uh, by the Spirit. He, he's, he's deeper, goes deeper into the wilderness. He's more isolated than John the Baptist, and he has this meeting, again, this showdown with Satan. And this is early in Christ's public ministry, mind you. In fact, it's immediately following 
Christ's baptism, which we saw last week was the inauguration of Christ's public ministry. Right? Christ being proclaimed by the Father and the Spirit as the Son of God, and John the Baptist declaring Jesus as the Lamb of God is followed up immediately by Satan seeking to thwart God's plan, Satan seeking to destroy what the Lord is doing, redemptively speaking. And in Mark's gospel, again, gives us the the shorthand of the events that transpired. But, but as we see the shorthand, we need to hold it in our minds that Mark really is this primary source for both Matthew and Luke's account. But Mark tells us the Spirit thrust Christ into the wilderness, that Christ was there for 40 days, that he was tempted by Satan, that he was with wild beasts, and, and Mark is the only one that, in, it, that includes wild beasts um, in, in, in this detail about Christ's temptation, which we'll also revisit in just a moment. But he was with wild beasts in the wilderness, and then he was ministered to by angel, angels. Right? We, don't, we don't see fasting in Mark's account as we do in Matthew and Luke, but, but Mark, again, he's not giving us the specifics. He's, he's detailing what happened. And, and again, his style is immediate, and it's action-focused. The Son of God met with the accuser. He met with the devil, who's Satan, and, and that is the focal point. That is what Mark is communicating. Now, Matthew, as we read just a moment ago, gave a fuller account. And then if we were to read Luke, we would see that Luke reorganizes the series of temptations from, from Matthew's account that we just read, the temptations go stone to bread, the temptation for Jesus to jump off of the building, and the temptation uh, for Jesus to worship Satan. Luke's record, if you were to turn over there, and you can do that later, I would encourage you to do it, goes stones to bread, the worship of Satan, and then the temptation to jump off of a building. And, and these shouldn't be seen as discrepancies but as complementary accounts written by different men with different purposes. We, we see these types of changes to order with even particular events in the Old Testament as well. But I would say that it's lazy thinking and even poor scholarship to see these as discrepancies. The differences are a matter of purpose. Matthew sought to be chronological. That's why we see the genealogy as the opener from Matthew's gospel. Luke was writing for a particular, defense, a particular defense of the Christian faith for a man named Theophilus, and we see that in Luke 1 regarding both the person and work of Christ. And Luke's ordering or reorganizing, if you will, of the temptations seems to be geographical rather than chronological. The temptations, according to Luke, began in the wilderness, then they moved to the outskirts of Jerusalem on a mountain, and they ended in Jerusalem itself. Okay, Luke isn't trying to be chronological. But even more than this, we should see as well that, that as Christians, that the Spirit of God communicating through these different accounts doesn't flatten out the unique way and purpose for which these men communicated the historical account of Christ's life and his ministry. Again, we, we need to remember as well that both Matthew and Luke probably relied on Mark's account, Mark being their primary source, and they, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit of God, gave fuller pictures of what happened in their unique way regarding the temptation of Jesus. Not everything that happened, 
We don't have everything that happened there, right? But we have what the Holy Spirit of God wanted the recipients of the Gospels to know and what the Holy Spirit of God wants us to know as well. All right, we're, we're reading this account so far removed from the events that are recorded here, right? But we know as Christians that the Word of God is living and active, right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, because the God who inspired the Word and who has preserved the Word is living and active. And, and the Spirit that breathed these books into existence through human authors, right, many years ago, wants to apply the things that we see even now. So it's good and it's right for us to open this book and by God's grace look with, with eyes of faith, trusting that the Spirit will in fact illuminate for us what we need to see as Deer Park Fellowship. So, so what are some things from this text that we should note, that we should pay attention to? And, and kids, if you're taking notes, this is, this is one of those moments that you can, you can write this down. And if you, you don't get it down when I'm finished speaking, you can look on uh, with uh, an adult and, and get the answer from their bulletin because this is included in the takeaways. But the first thing that we should see is that Jesus in the wilderness is good news for us. Jesus in the wilderness is good news for us. One commentator says this of Christ being in the wilderness. He says, Israel was in the wilderness 40 years, Deuteronomy 8 to Moses was on Mount Sinai 40 days and nights, Exodus 34, 28. Elijah was led for 40 days and nights to Mount Horeb, 1 Kings 19, 8. In each instance, the wilderness was a proving ground a test of faithfulness and a promise of deliverance. The same contrasts are present in Jesus's temptation for in the wilderness, Jesus is both tempted by Satan and attended by angels. Right? Jesus's 40 is the culmination of all these 40s that we see in the Old Testament. And, and what I want to hone in on is that Jesus in the wilderness really means for us it really means our deliverance, okay? Jesus in the wilderness means our deliverance, right? Unlike Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, right? their, their, their 40 years in the wilderness was characterized by covenant breaking, right? Christ's 40 days of, of fasting and prayer and temptation was characterized by covenant keeping, right? It was characterized by covenant keeping. And if Christ keeps the covenant, and he does, right? If Christ keeps the covenant, then it, it truly is good news for us to be found in Christ. That's good news for us this morning. Now, I mentioned that the, the Greek word that Mark uses for Christ being led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God as being, uh, uh, meaning uh, the Spirit of God thrust. Okay, there's a... There's a um, there's a forcefulness behind it, right, is the, is, the, is the word that Mark is using. And I think that this has for us some, some Old Testament imagery behind it. Even if the Roman Christians who were primarily the recipients of this letter, even if they weren't, they weren't as mindful of it. 
this passage of Christ being thrust into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, it echoes back to the ceremonial law in ancient Israel in which a priest would take a goat right, and confess the sins, the transgressions of God's people, and then literally thrust the goat out into the wilderness. Le- Leviticus 16.29 summarizes this for us. And I think we have it up on the screen here. Yeah. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away, shall thrust it out into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And that's Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21. And this is where we get the word scapegoat from. Christ in his humanity was thrust in the wilderness to become the scapegoat for God's people so that we may be free, so that we may not inherit that wage that our sin earned, as we saw earlier, which is death, which is death. Christ's entire earthly ministry, it can be described as one being in the wilderness, but we especially see this morning Christ in the wilderness. He's, he's actually in the wilderness. And, and we get this snapshot of what the rest of the account, the details of his earthly ministry is going to entail. One of living in the shadow of our sins, his entire ministry here on the earth. One who took our sins upon himself. Takes, takes our sins to the wilderness, right? To the cross. Christ being our final and ultimate scapegoat. I read this last week, but it's worth a reminder here. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep, right, have gone astray, right? All, that, that includes every, every person ever created. That's our state. That's our condition. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And then there's this, this good news that the prophet Isaiah tags on right at the end. That's, that's really the highlight of the passage. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's really unfair. Right? That the Lord would take our sins and put them on our scapegoat who was Christ. Right? So just as Aaron laid the sins of Israel on the goat, Right, so our triune God has laid our sins on Christ. He's laid our sins on Christ. He laid our iniquities. He laid our transgressions. He laid our sins on our permanent scapegoat. And he thrust him into the wilderness, to the cross, to the grave, where he left our sins behind. So Christ in the wilderness, we see in this great temptation, we see that Christ in the wilderness, our covenant keeper in the wilderness is such good news for us. It's such good news for us. Secondly, Christ amongst the wild beasts should comfort us. Christ amongst the wild beasts should comfort us. And I, I mentioned this earlier as well, but Mark is the only one of the gospel writers that mentions wild beasts. Right? There, there are scholarly disagreements as to why Mark brings this phrase up, especially since Mark's style is, is again, it's brief and it's immediate. Right? If, if he's 
if he's shorthanding the account, why would he include wild beasts? Now, that, that's a, legit, a legitimate question. And, and even considering the two longer accounts that we have, why did they exclude it? Also, legitimate question. And again, I would answer that it, it comes down to the purpose of Mark's gospel. Remember, Mark wrote this again, and this is, this is going to come up as we work through this book together. Mark wrote this gospel between AD 60 and AD 70, and he wrote it to Roman Christians who were living under the tyranny of Emperor Nero. That's the circumstances in which this gospel is being written. In the historian uh, uh, Tacitus, who was born in, 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 in AD 56, he died around A.D. 120, wrote that Nero would feed Christians to hungry wild beasts and dogs. Right? Nero would feed Christians to hungry wild beasts and dogs. Right? If Mark's purpose is to write to Roman Christians facing this intense persecution, and, and if historically Christians were being killed, they were being martyred, in this very way, this inclusion of wild beasts as it relates to Christ, it would have been immensely comforting for the recipients of Mark's gospel. It would have been immensely comforting, right? And it, and it should be comforting to us as well. Right? Christ, the Son of God, He suffered. He suffered, and He's present, and He can sympathize with His people as they suffer as you suffer, as I suffer. The, the Apostle Paul is comforted by this very thing in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. It says that I may know him, speaking of Christ, know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And look at this strange phrase, and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's interesting. Being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul experienced that word fellowship. Right? There's significance to that very word. But Paul experienced intimacy is what, what he's trying to capture in that passage. There was intimacy that he had with Christ in the midst of extreme suffering. And suffering can... It can have that effect. By God's grace, it can have that effect when we adopt this mindset as Christians. Right? For the Christian, suffering can produce deep, abiding intimacy with the Lord. And the preacher to the Hebrews as well comforted the Hebraic Christians, the Hebraic church with the sufferings of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 to 16 the preacher says this, we don't have a high priest who cannot, get this, sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, in light of that, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you feel like you're in need this morning, man, this is like drinking from a deep, refreshing well. He says later, Hebrews 13, about Jesus, 
The preacher to Hebrews says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. Here's the action step here. Therefore, here's how he comforts the church that's struggling. If Christ went outside the gate, he says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, right? Christ was not spared suffering. This side of eternity, we won't be spared suffering. We won't be spared suffering, but there's company. There's company, and the company is good. The company is our Savior. As we suffer, we fellowship with him. And I'm not saying we should invite suffering and say, let's, ha- let's have it. I want that. Right? Suffering is a result of the fall. In and of itself is evil, but God takes things like suffering, flips it on his head, infuses it with purpose, good cosmic eternal purpose that brings him glory and that produces for you a more intimate relationship with him. So let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. We have fellowship in our sufferings. We identify with Christ and he's with us. So no matter where you are in life, It doesn't matter what you're going through in life. Christ, he's near you. He's near you and he, according to the word, can sympathize with you. In fact, Christ suffered worse than you. And it's not just because he endured the worst of all suffering, which was the wrath of God, but it's coupled with the fact that Christ was the only innocent man to ever walk the earth. Christ, the innocent, he suffered immensely. He suffered at no fault of his own. And this Christ who suffered, right, who, who, who took our sins upon himself, he's present with you as you suffer. He fellowships with you in your suffering. Right? Christ, he was amongst the wild beasts, and, and he's with you as you live amongst and endure your wild beasts whatever they may be. And Christ is with you to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. Three, unlike Christ, we are inwardly tempted. We are inwardly tempted. You're only human. We hear that expression when someone messes up, or maybe that's something that you've been told when you've messed up, and I get the sentiment of trying to be encouraging, but that's not what being human actually means. Not really. Christ was more human. He was truly human. He was more human than we have ever been. And to be truly human, to have the imago Dei, the image of God restored in us, is to be rid of all sin. It's to be rid of all sin, to be rid of our very inclinations towards sin. We won't be truly human until Christ returns and makes everything new, which includes making us new in our glorified bodies. Being truly human, right? the temptations of Christ were external only, much like the temptations of Adam and Eve in the garden, though they fell. Right? But Christ's inner man was not lured by the methods and the traps that were set by Satan. He didn't long inwardly for what Satan offered. 
Christ had no inner inclination towards sin. Right? In contrast to us, because we're fallen, right, we have a sin nature. Right? We were born into sin, and therefore we are sinners. King David teaches us this, that, 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 that in sin we were conceived. In other words, we were sinners before we even personally committed a transgression, which is Psalm 51. We have inward temptations and thus pressures to enter into that temptation, to give in or to give up because the external temptations that we face often and sadly harmonize with inward longings. John Owen, who's an English Puritan, lived between 1616, died in 1683, he captured, captures this well in his work on sin and temptation. He says this, quote, there are traitors in our hearts, ready to take part, to close, inside with every temptation, and to give up, uh, and to give up all to them, Yea, to solicit and bribe temptations to do the work as traitors incite an enemy. We have to see that we're we're weak. We're we're not strong and we're not independent in our fight against sin. We must not think the way that the Apostle Peter thought. He thought that he could stand firm and not abandon Christ in the moment of Christ's need when Christ was arrested, arrested. Right? Christ told him that he'd given to temptation before the rooster finished crowing. Right? Pride and the illusions of strength, they come before our fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Right? We need external help. We need external help. So, so what are we to do? What are we to do? There's some practical ways that the Lord has given us to combat uh, temptation and and. And that's the last point that we see. We should have clear strategies to fight sin. And I'm going to give you just four strategies this morning. Strategy one is this. Remember that you're dependent upon the Spirit. Remember that you're dependent upon the Spirit of God. We cannot fight sin in the flesh. Again, Peter sought to do this and he failed. We will lose every time if we seek to combat temptation on our own. Again, we're weak. In Christ's temptation, we see that it was the Spirit, again, that thrust him into the wilderness, which even demonstrates to us a sensitivity that Christ had toward the Spirit of God, a sensitivity that we should cultivate in our own lives, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. But if you were to look at Luke's account, at the conclusion of Christ's temptation, you would see, according to Luke 4.14, that he returned from the wilderness, returned from the great temptation in the power of the Spirit. He went into the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, being thrust in the wilderness by the Spirit. Christ left in the power of the Spirit. But these other strategies that I want to give you, they, they, they really are inner connected as it relates to fostering a mindset of your dependency upon the Spirit of God. And so strategy two, again, that, that, that supports this, um, this mindset, if you will, which is primary, being dependent on the Spirit, walking in the power of the Spirit. That's a primary thing for us that we need to ensure we stay focused on, 
And these things help us. These other strategies help us do that very thing. That the Word of God, this is strategy two, the Word of God should be in your bones. The Word of God should be in your bones. God charges Ezekiel to eat his words. To eat his words. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 3. He, he commands the same to the apostle John in Revelation chapter 10 verses 8 to 11. We see the prophet, I love the way the prophet Jeremiah speaks of God's words. The prophet Jeremiah says it this way in Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16. He says, your words were found and I ate them. I, I love that. To, to see the word of God as our very nourishment. To have that high view of God speaking and finding what he spoke about. He says, your words were found and I ate them in your words. And here's the response. Your words to me were the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jeremiah 15, 16. And it's, it's not just... It's not just knowing God's word like a computer that just puts out information. I mean, there's many spiritually bankrupt women and men who know the information of God's word and, and, and look at it irreverently like that. But God's word's not like any other book, and to treat it like any other book is to you're approaching the whole thing wrong. It's not an encyclopedia. You don't... You don't you don't read it like you're prepping for jeopardy, right? Satan, he, he had this same and has this same heart posture, but he had this same heart posture in his very effort to manipulate Jesus. Satan knows the Bible, and he knows how to use the Bible. We have evidence for this, not just in the Word of God, but we have evidence of this in our own lives. He knows how to use the Word of God to manipulate. He knows how to use the Word of God to accuse. He knows how to use the Word of God to discredit. Right? Some of you have experienced spiritual abuse by people who use the Word of God like a weapon in this very blasphemous way to handle such a sacred and reverent book, God's words to us, to use them like that. Instead, God's Word should be sweet. It should be sweet. It's written by the Holy Spirit of God not to debate, but to cherish to consume. And when you approach it this way, it, it becomes your joy. It, it becomes your treasure. It rejoices, as the prophet Jeremiah says, it rejoices your heart because it's the very means that God uses to testify to you about himself. Right? Christians are to be experimentally moved by God's word. And just as a side note, a clear way to do that through the memorization of God's Word, through meditating on God's Word, pondering it, if you will, until it warms your affections and until the Spirit of God applies it to you. And there's overlap with that here with this third strategy, which is to watch and pray. Watch and pray. We'll visit this passage later in our series, but we see Christ's charge to be watchful and prayerful in Mark chapter 14, verses 37 to 38. 
Then he, speaking of Jesus, came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is also what our Lord was doing when he fasted in the wilderness during his great temptation. He was watching and he was praying. We know what it means to pray. And I will say that, that praying the word of God, an overflow really of meditation is very helpful. But do you know what it means to be watchful? Do you know what it means to be watchful in your life? And I would commend a, a, a small book written by a guy named Brian Hedges called Watchfulness. It's a fantastic book that can help to flesh this out a little bit more for you. But the Puritan John Owen, again, is helpful for us here. He defines watchfulness this way. And don't try to jot this down. You have a panic attack. Um, but watchfulness, he describes watchfulness as a universal carefulness and diligence exercising itself in and by all ways and means prescribed by God over our hearts and ways, the baits and methods of Satan, the occasions and advantages of sin in the world that we be not entangled is that which in this word is pressed on us. It's watchfulness. We should be careful and we should be diligent to pay attention to all of the snares that are set for us. The the best way to to repent of sin is by eliminating as many opportunities so far as it depends on us to be tempted. So we want to prayerfully discern those situations in which we're most vulnerable towards sin. We don't want to give any advantage whatsoever to the enemy. We want to play the home games, not the away games, if you will. So is is it late at night when you're tempted most? Is it when you're isolated that you're tempted most? Is it when you're online without a purpose that you find yourself tempted most? Is it when you're fatigued that you find yourself tempted most? Is it the company that you keep? Is that, is that a bad thing for you? Now, the aim is, is certainly to repent at the heart level, but avoiding the circumstances, the outward stressors, that heat, if you will, again, so far as it depends on you, that complicates you walking in repentance and faith, that is wise. That's wisdom to walk in that manner. So stand watch. Be watchful. Be prayerful. And finally, the last strategy, repent of despair as you fight temptation. Repent of despair as you fight temptation. We never see despair in the life of Jesus. Never. We don't see despair in any of the gospel accounts of this great temptation that we have before us. And we should see in the progression of the temptations of Jesus that the more you resist sin, the more you resist sin, the more intense things get. In other words, don't expect things to get easier. Don't expect things to get easier. Going back to the preacher to the Hebrews he uses Christ as an example to encourage them to persevere even in their um, righteous walking so far as it depends upon them cooperating with the Spirit. He says this in Hebrews twelve four: you've not resisted, you've not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. How's that for encouragement, right? 
especially for those of us who may think we're doing well, you haven't bled yet, all right? Is what the, uh, the, the preacher to Hebrews is saying, right? In other words, it gets harder in the war that you're waging by the Spirit against sin and temptation, and it's a war that you will wage until you die. You'll wage it until you die, right? We tend to think that things get easier this side of eternity, and that's just not, simply not the normative Christian experience, right? And if, if we're all honest with ourselves, that hasn't been our individual experiences in our walking with the Lord, right? Walking in repentance and walking in faith, it necessitates a conflict. It necessitates a conflict. It necessitates a cosmic clash, if you will, right? The faithfulness of Jesus in the wilderness, again, a wilderness characterized by his entire earthly ministry, it meant conflict with Satan. There was no way around that. It meant spiritual warfare. And the same is true for you and me. Jesus says, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So don't get discouraged. Don't despair. Right? See your fight with sin with the long view in mind and pick up your weapons of war. By the Spirit of God, pick up those weapons of war. The Word of God, right? the discipline of watchfulness and the discipline of of prayer, and in your struggle with temptation, know that God provides escape for every temptation that we face. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time in your word. God, we pray, God, that you would help us in our fight against temptation, that you would help us to increase in our hatred for sin and our love for you. And help us, Lord, to, to pick up those weapons that you've given us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a portion of our service where we're